Good morning, everyone. Before I go any further today, um, most of you might know this already, but for those of you who do not, Mike's wife, Sherry Hill, passed away on Thursday. Um, the whole family was up here this morning. I made it a thousand times harder to say than right now, but it's still not easy. I can, told them earlier I can feel my heart like throbbing right now for that family. But Sherry was loved by so many people, it's evident. And so Thursday, there will be a service from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. here at the church. Isaac. And there will be a time where you can come pay your respects to the family, pass on the condolences, um, and then at 7 p.m., as it was Sherry's wish, there will be a service, a worship service, um, where we'll celebrate her life. So that will also be streamed live if you're unable to make it um, at 7 p.m. So we will ask that you come and lift up this family in this time. Uh, and right now, before we go any further, I want to pray over that family once again. So if you would. Heavenly Father, we pray for this Hill family and the Clark family, Lord. Everyone is touched by Sherry's life. Lord, we pray for peace for the family that surpasses all understanding. Lord, we pray that your righteous right hand would lift up this family and continue to illuminate their paths even though they might seem dark right now. God, I pray that this family can feel your comfort physically, Lord, that you would give them this understanding of where their mom resides eternally. Lord, we thank you for Sherry's life. And we pray that you continue to lead this family in who you are. Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't have anything to go from that to this, but to shift our focus from that time on to now, uh, we're going to be studying the book of James. Um, and if you haven't read the book of James, I highly encourage you to do so. It's a very easy read. For me, it was probably one of the easiest books I ever read um, when I went through reading the entire Bible. And James is a practical book. It's very straightforward. You can read James and say, yeah, that makes sense. But what's hard about James is that though it seems like it makes sense when we read it, when we live it, it doesn't. Because the Christian lifestyle is not easy. Mike talked last week about James 1, about trials, as we've seen what the family has gone through with Sherry. He said that it's hard to understand something until you're living it. And James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And I think that's true. Because how could you ever consider something like this pure joy? But that's the way James reads in an entirety as an epistle that it is, all five chapters of it, the letters to the Jewish Christians. It's very easy to look at James and say, I understand what it says until you have to apply it in your life or until it affects you. So I want you to understand that James is that cliff notes of Christianity, but I think this is where we lose our focus. 
is that when you read James chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, we'll talk about today, if you want to open your Bibles and prep for that, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. He opens up with this saying that says that you should not show favoritism. And to our eyes, we would read that and say, okay, I don't do that. And we would read it and acknowledge that, yes, God said this and James wrote about this, but that's not for me. I don't show it. But I want to remind you that James is writing in verse 1 to the believers of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So this is for you and this is for me and it's for everyone who believes whether you think you do it or not, it's important for us to recognize how practical this is and what James talks about. Because I would be willing to say that if I were to ask you to raise your hands right now, and I'm not going to, and not for just this church, this is the church at large. If I said, if I asked you when the last time you met somebody new was, not very many hands would go up. And not just shaking a hand or knowing somebody's name, like sitting down with somebody new and knowing their story. We don't do it as a church, and it's a conviction, and I know it's a conviction for me, because I've been there, and I've had to refocus my attention on being the person who can say, I want to know who you are, let's meet up, let's learn more, I want to share who Jesus is in my life with you. It goes beyond just that initial interaction, and that's what James kind of alludes to, is that favoritism sometimes isn't just the way we see someone at face value, it's the way that we handle our own spiritual development within the confines of the church. And he's going to open this up. But I think if we don't open James up and we just read verse 1 and go to the next verse, we don't understand how significant verse 1 is. James says this in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. James says there's a God who doesn't show show favoritism and you shouldn't either. You can read that throughout scripture. He talks about not showing favoritism or partiality depending on the different translation you're reading. I'll use those two terms interchangeably, favoritism and partiality. But you have to understand who James is writing to. If you remember the culture of the church at the time, it's not like what we know today. You aren't walking around your city or your community and you see a sign that says Life Church and, oh, it's a Sunday, so we're going to go into there. And we recognize that when we talk about it, but think about being in that position. Like imagine the church was in a house. There wasn't this big advertisement weeks in advance. There was no other way other than the word of mouth to share that people were gathering. But they were also gathering in public marketplaces and public gathering places. And that's important to remember because think about the people who were walking around at the time. There was pagans, there was barbarians, there was philosophical Greeks, there's Jews, there's slaves, there's free people, there's poor people, there's Romans. There's people walking around from different backgrounds. And James, we remember, is writing to the Jewish Christians. I mentioned this a while ago, and if you remember, great for you. But if not, I'll remind you, James was the brother of Jesus who wrote to the Jewish Christians living outside of Jerusalem. It's a really easy way to remember what James is addressing. So James is writing to the group of Jewish people. And remember, God in the Old Testament that we read about was for the Israelites. He was the God of the Israelites. That was his chosen people. Now, we know God's the creator of all beings, but God said that he chose this group, that he would be their God. And James is writing to those people who are now following Jesus. 
and understands that all these other groups of people that are coming from different areas to here had heard about what was going on, had heard about the ministry of Jesus or physically saw him on earth. Like there's people who had encounters with Jesus who might have been at the resurrection or revealed at the resurrection or witnessed the crucifixion. James was one of the people he revealed himself to at the resurrection. So these people coming from different areas had either seen Jesus walking here or they had heard about him while he was walking on this earth. These people that have gods of their own, little g, gods, and they hear about our God that we serve doing this unspeakable thing and they want to know more. So now these people who have this different understanding of who God is are having to come into this Jewish culture of people that are saying God was for us, having to understand that Jesus died for everybody, not just for them. So that's a huge culture clash that we're dealing with when James is addressing the church here. The problem I think we find today in the church is that we've become like the Jews. We've said that God is for the people who attend here on Sunday but those are sinners. We've become the people that say, if you come to church and you do good things and you believe in God, that he's for you, but he's not for you because you don't do it. Convicting. That's who James is writing to. And today it still speaks. That's why he says to the believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, it's to all of us. It doesn't matter what you look like doesn't matter what you've done. That's the design of the church. It doesn't matter where you come from, what clothes you wear. Come as you are. There is a place for you here. But the Jews were saying otherwise. And James is writing to them saying, don't let the way you treat other people be any different than from who you know Christ to be. Because if you had had an interaction with Christ for one day on this planet, on this earth, I'm sure you would probably live your life differently too. I know I would but why are we living any different? You see, our job as a church is to show people who Jesus is, even for the people that have not seen him or don't know him or haven't heard about him. I've never seen Jesus physically walking on this earth, but I know who he is because I read scripture and I know who he is in my life. And James is saying we have to let people know who Jesus is so it does not matter who someone is, where they're from, or what they look like when we're sharing this message. Because Jesus, remember, himself didn't judge by outward appearances. If you remember the story of the widow's offering or the widow's mina, the widow gave two mites. This poor widow walks into the temple and gives two mites. The Bible says it was everything that she had. There was rich Pharisees all around her who were giving out of their abundance. She gave all she had. Jesus didn't judge her. He commended her for giving everything she had. There was a half-bred Samaritan woman at the well in midday that Jesus had an encounter with. Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. They didn't communicate with one another. Jesus goes to the well at midday and has a full-on conversation with this woman at the well. He knows who she is. She can't hide it. She can't hide who she is to someone, or she can hide who she is to someone else, but she can't hide who she is from Jesus. And he says, I know you've had five husbands, and the one you're with right now is not your husband either. That's convicting when you're talking to the Messiah, but she doesn't know that at the time. And she says, well, I believe that the Messiah is to come and to tell us all things and what we're supposed to do. And Jesus reveals himself 
to this woman who is cast away from her own society. And he says, I am he. This woman goes back and changes the faith of an entire group of people. Jesus didn't look at, as it, look at her as a barrier. He looked at her as a, as a way to be used by God's will. Jesus sees that potential in others. And so should we. Remember, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Remember, he grew up in a middle-class family of carpenters with his brother James. Remember that he was hated by the rich and poor. He was spit on. He was rejected from the place that he was raised in. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? The Savior of the world did. So understand that Jesus' stature, if you watch him walk into the room, isn't this big, blinding light while he was on earth. He's not this richly looking man. He looked like anybody else. And Jesus walked around looking for sinners. Because within every sinner is a potential saint. And Jesus went through and saved the lost and saved the sinner. He didn't partake in their sin, but I think this is where we're getting tripped up. We become holy. That person's covered in sin. If I reach out to them, it's going to get all over me. It's a reality. People will avoid having confrontations with people that are living in full-on sin, but don't forget, we're all sinners. We're not these holy, perfect beings. That's who Jesus is. That's what James gets at. He says this, the glorious Lord. Why is all of that important to say? All that's important to say is if our glorious Lord was a humble servant, then you should be able to live your life the same way. Because God is not just this lofty being who sits up in the sky. He came in the flesh incarnate and he lived a life that we should be living of obedience to serve other people. And if he can be considered the glory of Lord for looking for sinners and to saving the world through him, we should be able to too. The brother, the brother, James, of Jesus is saying that his brother is the glorious Lord. And that's why it's so important that we understand verse one isn't just, hey, if you believe. It's because if you believe and know who Jesus is, that you would live this way and you wouldn't do what the Bible is telling us not to do. You would, you would be obedient to God's word. But understand the glory too, this last little piece to tie this in, is that in the presence of glory, we have to be humbled because in the presence of God, we're not glorious ourselves. Jesus is the only one who can present us before the throne that can lift us up before that moment. But we're all shabby sinners before the presence of God. But only Jesus and only through what Jesus did on that cross, the one who died for our sins, who resurrected on the third day, who sits at the right hand of God and who is yet to come, that person is telling us what to do. And we'll go into this further. But uh, I want to show this picture. You might have seen it on social media. Uh, but that's the church today. That's what we've become. We look at someone and say, well, you're a little different. There's no way you go to church. You don't believe. You don't even know the person's story. I've been, I think, all of those people in that picture. But James is saying, that's the sin. So I want you to keep that picture in your mind as we go forward in today's message and afterwards. 
that that's what we've become as a church, and we can't let that be. He says this. He gives us a description in verses 2 through 4, a kind of a scenario of what it's like to show favoritism. He says this. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is pointing out a few things here. First thing is the rich man. When you see him, he clearly has a status. He's got gold rings on. It's evident that this man is trying to portray some sort of higher up status in society. Remember this congregation of Jewish people, and there's somebody coming in who looks rich and somebody who looks poor. But in Roman culture, you could actually rent rings to give yourself a higher status, but you wouldn't know someone's actual wealth unless you knew them. And then there's a poor person that comes in in these clothes, these shabby clothes. That poor person comes in, but we don't know why they're wearing those clothes. We don't know if this moment was the only opportunity they had before they got done working, in, or after they got done working in the fields to come and hear about Jesus. We don't know their story either. The sin that James is talking about is the initial distinction that we make based solely on the outward appearance of someone. That somebody walks in and they look different and we start to raise questions. That's what James is starting to get at, but the sin goes much deeper. The sin is this value-based judgment on something that you make, this criteria that you're making based on what you know and what you've experienced not on what God said. It's like saying someone comes in the church and they look different. It's like, yeah, there is a place for you here. It's not right there. But we have an image to kind of uphold. So you're going to have to maybe change the way you're dressing or the way you look. Because you don't look like someone who should be in here right now. And you're blind if you don't know that there's churches today that are making people feel that way. That's the reality of the world that we're living in. We've become like that picture. But notice James is not condemning rich people for being rich, and he's not condemning poor people for being poor. Has nothing to do with it, really. What he's condemning is the sin that we, the congregants, the believers, will make when someone's trying to know who Jesus is. I don't think it's even that we sit somewhere, uh, when somebody comes into church here on Sunday, I don't think it's so much where somebody sits. I've sat in many different seats in this house. Almost every Sunday that I'm not up here, I'm in a different seat. I don't even know where I've sat the week before. And I know many people sit in different seats as well. So I don't think it's so much about the seat that we give someone on a Sunday as it is the space we're giving people Monday through Saturday. Because when you go outside of here, you can still show favoritism, not just when we're meeting on a Sunday morning. Because the church didn't just meet at this one specific set in time. That's when all churches met. Churches were a con constant thing. The gospel had to be shared. So understand that when God gives you a space to operate and let others come to know who Jesus is, it's not up to you to say where someone would sit or where someone would be. We've all been to the store, grocery store. You've been to a restaurant. You've had communication with other people other than your church family, other than other believers. But yet, almost every day, we show judgment, even if it's a thought, based on the way someone else looks. That's where James comes from. The Israelites, not the chosen people anymore, right? It's for everybody. That's who Jesus died for. And it's not our job to say, you deserve this and you deserve this. 
based on the way that you look. The, the verse that goes with that picture, uh, I feel, is 1 Samuel 16, uh, 7. It says, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We think we know someone's heart based on the way they look. And I'm here to tell you today that it's very uncomfortable to get to meet someone new, but I would challenge you to try to do it. Like when you leave here, don't have a conversation with your family. Don't have a conversation with your best friend. You guys are going to meet up later. You have each other's phone numbers. Try meeting someone new. Stop saying, where are we going to lunch next? And say, when was the last time you ate? Start saying, hey, let's meet up this week over coffee because I want to know more about you. That's how we stop showing favoritism is we get other people involved who walks into the assemblies or that we meet out in town and we get them around Jesus because what's our mission here? Our mission is to get people to know Jesus and help them get there. We want everybody to know that Jesus is alive and what he's done for us and we can't do that if we're not gonna share that with other people. You might be the one person that somebody walks in these doors or you have an interaction with out in town that God's trying to use and who are you to deny that? If you feel led, go with it. Meet someone new. Because I say this all the time. Today's church, American church, is privileged. It's got a silver plate, a gold spoon, whatever phrase you want to throw at it. We even show favoritism because things don't benefit me. So why would I do that? Like I see you come in and I know that you have a need but I don't have time for that. I'm busy. The American church is more concerned about the appearance than the heart and the, and the meaning behind what we're doing. We've had people say some, I, just my time in church. At my previous church in San Diego, somebody came in and said, you painted your stage black. I'm leaving. There are people not knowing the gospel message and dying because you don't like the color of paint. You think that's the problem in the church? We can't address the sin of favoritism until we address our, address our hearts first, our motives. And James is saying, don't show favoritism because there's a mission that we have to take care of. People need to know this message. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And we can't do that if we're gonna get stuck in our bubble. Ultimately, we refuse to have those conversations, but we need to recognize this and this, I think, needs to be said because it's not said. Favoritism is not just the poor, taking care of the poor. If you solely focus on the poor and you neglect the rest of the body of church, you are still showing favoritism. That's where I think we're getting tripped up. Yes, there's a need. Meet it. But it doesn't mean that you only focus on this person who doesn't know Jesus. You focus on on the body. You're trying to get that sheep with the 99. But we construe this concept and we say, we have to focus right here. Yes, we should be focusing right here. But James is trying to get our attention to say the church needs to be together. There can be no division. You cannot show favoritism. I had to show this illustration because I think it's great, but I don't know anything about cards at all. I actually found out um, that people think these are evil, if you can believe that. And I was telling the first service, I got these at Dollar General. So I don't think they're evil, and I don't know who owns Dollar General, but these are just a dollar set of playing cards. 
I've tried to play euchre for 20 years, don't know how to play it. If you want me to play with you, we're going to lose. I, I've just, my family, I think, like, judges me because, like, when we get together, they're like, hey, you want to play cards? And I just look at them, and I'm like, no, I, no. So anyway, my family, they love cards. They get together, and they play these games and just, you know, socialize. But I know something about cards, that the joker, when you open the pack up, you throw it away because you don't need the joker. <laughs> I don't know the game. But I don't know what other value you placed on cards before. The king's usually the high card. The, then there's the queen, then the jack. But then you have the two, which is usually the lowest, but the ace can be the lowest. Or it can be the highest, and then you've got male cards and female cards. You've got red cards, and you've got black cards. Whatever game you're trying to play, you set the value on this. Whatever game you want to win, you predetermine what card will and will not be better than the other. But that's what God sees. He doesn't see you based on what you have made the judgment on. He doesn't see you based on the value that you've given something. He sees everybody for the children of God that he's made us to be in his image. The Israelites were seeing things like this in the first church when God designed us to be like this in the first place. And we have to make sure that as a church, we are keeping things like this, that each card matters for the mission. But we can't assess our own value. It's not up to us. James goes into verses five through seven. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? To very easily summarize this, understand, if you've ever shown favoritism to the poor, God is giving his kingdom to those people, so you are discriminating against the very people that God's going to grant his kingdom to. That was convicting for me to read. But James also kind of highlights this thing that there is something about having money, and we read it in the Bible, the rich young ruler. Jesus would say, sell your possessions, follow the law. You want them to get into heaven, you need to do all these things. But the problem is that when we have possessions, we start to value our possessions over our relationship with God, whereas the poor don't have that ability. Like, you can't wait. The rich person can wake up and say, I've got a lake house and a boat. We're skipping church for three weeks because we're going to go spend time with family. Listen, there's nothing wrong with being successful. Understand that. But the problem is when you value your possessions and your time with your possessions over your relationship with God, the poor don't even have that option. There's people today who are on their knees saying the Lord's Prayer, saying, give us today our daily bread because they don't know when the next meal is coming. We've got a freezer full of food at home. There's a difference in faith when it comes to possessions. And James is saying, aren't the rich people the ones who are manipulating you? Because guess what happens when you get rich? Power. And guess who makes decisions in the places and where you live? The people with money and the people with power. Those people take God out of schools. They try to prevent us from gathering. They're the rich people. And they blaspheming his name. They say amen and a woman. You heard about this? There's people blaspheming God's name because they value their possessions and their wealth more than they value their relationship with the Lord. And remember, we're all gonna be judged one day. We will stand before judgment. And you're not gonna be judged based on how much money you've made. You're gonna be judged based on your motives 
and what you have done for God's kingdom. There's, a, there's so much evidence toward this throughout Scripture. But throughout, we see God says, don't show favoritism. Exodus 23.3, do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Romans 2.11, for God does not show favoritism. Colossians 3.25, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. James goes on, though, in verses 8 through 11, and he kind of brings everything in to our understanding. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. The royal law is called the royal law because it is supreme to all other laws. Like the greatest commandment we know is to love God and to love people. That's summarized. But how can you love a God you can't see but not love the neighbor that you see daily or neglect that neighbor? That's the reality of this royal law. It would say that if you believe what God has said about loving God and loving people, you wouldn't need any other laws. The king's the one that gave it to you. He said if you love people so much, you would value their life and you wouldn't murder. You would value people over anything and respect their boundaries enough to not commit adultery. That if you love then you can abide by what God said. But love is not just an emotion. Biblical love is an act of righteousness. Biblical love says that I have to love you no matter who you are, where you came from, or even if I agree with you. I don't know your story. I want to know it. I don't have to like your sin, though. But as the church, we refuse a group of people label themselves with a sin and we say, well, we can't touch them because they're sinful people. Wrong. Love God, love people. It doesn't say one group of people. It says people, all people. You have to love people beyond how you know. But you do not have to accept the sin because sin is sin, period. James says that if you commit the sin of favoritism or partiality. He also says you are a transgressor of the law. But he also says if you murder, you are a transgressor of the law. Murder and adultery in the Old Testament were capital punishments, meaning punishable by death. He's saying that this sin is just as severe. You don't get to say, well, well I'm not killing anybody just because I like, maybe like, think someone looks this way and they deserve this or deserve that. Okay, that's what you think. You don't get to walk into court after you've murdered someone and say, Judge, listen, I know I killed that man, but I just want you to know before you sentence me, I didn't commit adultery. The judge is going to be like, what did that even matter? You killed someone. You're going to be punished for your crimes. You broke the law. Not doing a sin and doing a sin don't cancel each other out. Imagine it like this. I love this illustration. Imagine you're holding on to a chain. The chain has 10 links on it, right? You're standing over a cliff, and below you is just death. If it breaks or you fall, you die. So let's say you're holding on to this chain. Chain link number five breaks. What happens? You die. What happens if number five is fine, but number two breaks, though? You still die. But what about if number two is fine, but number 
one breaks. You're still dead. The result of the chain breaking is the same, is the same every time because all sin is interconnected. It all breaks the law. So you have to understand the sin of partiality is severe. James is telling us that God said so. You can't just say, well, chain five broke, but I didn't break the rest of the chains. You're still dead. That's what separates us from God. But sadly, I think the church looks at people and we say, well, what they're doing is worse than what I'm doing. They're out there living in it. It just happens every now and then for me. I don't do it all the time. I don't live that way. I don't wake up and live it. Are you sinning? Are you a sinner? How different are you? How different are you to reach someone who lives a life of sin? You don't know their story until you get to meet them. And then you might understand why they're living that way. We are not the judges. Scripture will make that very clear. But I want to invite the worship team up as we close with this thought. And this, I think, is where we really can take away something from James and apply it to our lives. He says in verses 12 through 13, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is mercy? To summarize this in a very short way, it's the kindness, the compassion, or the forgiveness for people who are afflicted. And so when you go before God one day, because reminder, we all will stand before God one day and we will be judged. You will be judged on your actions. You will be judged on your thoughts. You will be judged on your motives of your heart. Imagine that moment when you're giving an accountability for everything you've done in your life. You're going to get down and say, but Lord, please have mercy on me. And you know what he's going to say? But did you show mercy? Because if you didn't show mercy to people while you were here, don't expect it on your judgment. But if you are merciful to others and those who have needs, guess what? Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says to speak and act accordingly. And I wanted to share this story because some people say, well, how am I supposed to show mercy to people? Remember where you came from. Remember your walk. Remember who Jesus is in your life because he's not just for you. He's for someone else too. Remember where you came from. I have this story where I remember not having a belt. And it was interesting because someone came up to me first service and said, I had a similar story. I didn't have a belt. I was like, whoa, cool. The problem is, is that I had to remember when I was a young kid, eight to 12, I went to my dad's, not very often. I didn't have a great relationship with my father. But I remember waking up and going to church with my neighbors. They would knock on my bedroom window to wake me up, not to disturb my dad, who was usually passed out. And they would invite me to church with them. Now I remember I'd come home sometimes before my dad was awake. But I didn't take clothes to my dad's house because I didn't really live there. 
So I would grab the thing that was closest to me, and I had stepbrothers at the time, so it was either some of their clothes or just whatever I could find. Now, never forget grabbing the wrinkly t-shirts out of the dresser. And I'll never forget grabbing jeans and shorts that were too big for me, and I never had a belt. And I can vividly remember getting a piece of nylon, yellow nylon rope from the garage and putting it in my loops and tying it around my waist so my pants would stay up. I would still go to church with that family, but you know what happened when I walked into the church? I sat in the same Sunday school class as somebody else. I drank the same milk and had the same donuts. I got to shake the same hands as the people who brought me there, and there was no favoritism because the people knew who I was and that I had a need and that they wanted me to know Jesus. And what, does, what this story does for me is it humbles me. That's one of many things I could say about my upbringing. But really... I'm not so much different from someone who's been in those shoes. And that's what God has called me to do is to tell people, I've been there, dude. I get it. At the time, I didn't care. I was a sweaty, young, pubescent kid who didn't care what he looked like or smelled like. But there's some people who are concerned about the way they present themselves before they come here because they think that they're gonna be judged by the church. And if that was ever you, I wanna say I'm sorry. That's not acceptable. That's not our calling as a church. I don't care what you came in here with today. I want you to know that I love you and the church loves you and that Jesus died for your sins because he died for mine too. That is how you show mercy to other people to say, listen, I get it. So if you would, please stand so I can pray for you. So Heavenly Father, let us remember and remind us continually of the mercy that you show us Lord, let us always go forth with every action and every thought that we take. Let it be merciful. Lord, let us live out the commandment to love you and to love others as ourselves. But we can't do anything without you. Lord, reveal to us ways to live sent so that we can go into the communities and have the uncomfortable conversations with people so that others can know who you are. Lord, use us as your servants and humble us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
you this week and forever to live sent. Don't forget where you came from. Show others mercy. Love others. Share Jesus with someone. I want to give you three things you can do this week. Number one, you can meet someone new, listen to their story, then share your story understand who God is and where he fits into where they are today. I think it would humble a lot of us. Number two, don't be afraid to share the gospel. Don't deny that, right? To someone who doesn't know Jesus, they need to know every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So be that person that someone else needs to hear the gospel. But number three is to speak and to act in all things you do as though you're gonna be judged. And I think if we can do that, we can begin to understand the severity of the mission that we're on. So I wanna thank you all uh, for joining us here today. I pray for traveling mercies as you guys uh, go your separate ways. We look forward to seeing you next week. God bless, we love you.